begin this morning with the story of two men who were marooned on a deserted island. One of the men marooned on this deserted island was afraid. He paced back and forth, worried that no one would find them. They would die on this island, he thought. But the other man wasn't scared at all. In fact, he seemed quite relaxed. He would sunbathe by the beach all day and enjoy the water and the beauty that was this deserted island. The first man said to the second man, Aren't you afraid that no one's going to find us? We're going to die here. The man said, Don't you worry. The first man said, Why not? He said, Let me tell you, I make a million dollars a week, and I tithe faithfully to my church 10% every week. My pastor for sure will find me. Don't you worry. We're going to be talking about giving this morning as we conclude our series in the book of Philippians. Now, I know some of you in your mind have mentally checked out because it is about the issue of giving, a subject we rarely talk about in this church because we are blessed with many generous givers uh, here. But it is in the text, and so I don't want you to think that you are not part of this message this morning. Some of you, your defensive walls have started to come up because in the idea of giving, you say, I- I've given enough. I give a lot. But you see, my friends, as we talk about this Christian responsibility of giving, what I want to tell you is that there's more to giving than money. In fact, it's part of our Christian responsibility that we are called to give. What exactly are we called to give? That's what we want to take a look at this morning as we conclude our series in the book of Philippians. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 4 as we take a look at verses 2 to 3 and verses 10 to 23. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 to 3, and verses 10 to 23. And here in these closing verses of this wonderful book, we're going to examine three areas that we are called to give generously. Three areas that if we learn to give generously and joyfully, we will find joy in our life. Let's take a look. Paul writes in verse 2 and verse 3 these words. I implore Euodia and I implore Synecdoche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Here, as Paul begins this section, we find out that there are two women who are arguing in the church. That shouldn't surprise you. Not because women argue, but because there's always arguments in the church. We don't know what they're arguing about. The Bible does not say. But so severe was their disagreement that it was causing dissension and conflict in the church. So big a conflict that Paul, all the way in Rome, had heard about it and felt the need, as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, to address it here in this letter. Now, you may think badly of these two women. Oh, they must be unspiritual women. 
Perhaps they are arguing about petty things like who's prettier. I don't know. But we find out in verse 3 that these two women are actually pretty spiritual. At one point, they work with Paul in the ministry of the furtherance of the gospel. Perhaps they had partnered together, worked together. But whatever the case, they were now in conflict and it was contentious. What does Paul say to the church in Philippi to deal with this issue? Paul encourages to the people in the church, the Christians, the people whom he calls true companion, fellow workers whose names are in the book of life, the Christians who are in the church, to help these women resolve their conflict. They were to be the peacemakers. They were to wade into the messiness of this conflict, not to take sides, but to speak the truth in love to these two women. Now you say, well, that's easy. Godly men and women dealing with conflict. But I wonder how many of you know of a conflict here in this church. But so few of you are willing to speak the truth in love, even though you know what is right and what is wrong. Because we all want to be the good guy. We all want to be the good guy. We don't want to wade into a conflict because we want both parties to like us. So it's not as easy as you think. No one wants to say the things that need to be said. But that's exactly what Paul implored them to do. You need to speak truth into the life of these women. You need to get involved into the messiness of this conflict for the sake of the Lord and His church. And here in these two verses, we see the first area of which we are to give generously. And if you're taking notes, here's number one. We are to give generously of our time. Paul implores them, give of your time to deal with this issue. No one wants to wade into the messiness of a conflict, especially if it doesn't concern them. But if a conflict is causing dissension in the church, then we all have an obligation to take the time and effort out of the generosity of our lives to enter into helping this matter be resolved. If you have the time to listen to rumors, if you have the time to listen to gossip, if you have the time to allow your idle ears to be tickled and itched, then you certainly have time to find out the truth. You have time to quash these rumors. You have time to deal with the issues head on. You have time to go to the primary source and not simply hear it from the second or third person account. Let me just say, my friends, to avoid conflict in the church, to allow something to be nipped at the bud, you need to take the time to ask for clarification. Don't assume anything. There's always two sides to the story. Before the rumor gets started, ask for clarification. Confront in love if needed. That's how bad feelings often occur between people, and especially in the church that causes dissension. When people are misunderstood or 
Most likely they misunderstand something. And then they do not take the time or the effort to find out the reason. You know me. I love to explain why the church does what it does. I'm very transparent. I like to explain why we do what we do, why we do communion the way we do, why we move from a passing the plate system to a Dropbox system, why we have this policy and that policy. And I welcome you if you have any questions. Please let me or any of the pastoral staff know they're all fully versed into the rationale of why we do what we do. But there are some things we are not at liberty to tell you because of confidentiality. And you need to trust the leadership of the pastor and the board that what is done is done after much prayer and done for the sake of the Lord and His ministry. Now you may be thinking in your mind, what's happened? Why is pastor addressing this? Nothing's happened. It's in the text. I mention this as a preventative principle for you to live by. Because as our church grows, somehow the favorite activity of people in general is listening to gossip. Listening to that which tickles our ears. And so I caution you in that for the sake of the Lord. And that will require you the giving of your precious time to find out the truth. Go to the source. Talk to the staff. Talk to people who are involved. Find out what's really going on. And then you will know the truth. And then you can also speak the truth in love. The generosity of the giving of your time. But you know, the giving of time really goes beyond just conflicts. That's the specific example here in this biblical text. But the great principle of giving of your time is so that we can invest into the lives of other people. The Bible tells us that when we give of our time in discipleship and discipling others, it edifies one another. It encourages them. How many of you are investing in the lives of other people with your time? Just this week, I had to go to the funeral home. And it wasn't one person who had died. It was six that I knew. And yes, that is a sad moment for the family. But at any age, again, mortality hits very strongly. You are reminded again that you are responsible for the time that God gives you. And those six people who left this earth, whether they're in heaven or the other place, must give an account of what they did with the time that God had given them. With the time that God has given you, what are you doing with it? You love meeting with friends. You like hanging out with your barcada. Are you investing spiritually in their lives? Dads and moms, are you investing into the lives of your children? Grandparents who love to spoil grandchildren. It is not only your job to take them out to eat and buy them whatever they want to the consternation of their parents. It is your responsibility also to invest your life into your grandchildren's life. Parents, you are an example to your children. Your children are watching you. 
And what you think about the Christian life is what's going to be transferred onto them. Children, you're not exempt. Young people, you are not exempt. Are you investing time with your parents? Are you investing time with your grandparents? Because before you know it, they may be gone. And you won't have time with them again. The giving of your time speaks to your generosity. Are you willing to give the time it is required to effectively invest in the lives of people God has placed you in responsibility over? David Kraft was a big, strong man, all muscle. At the age of 32, he was six feet, two inches tall, and he weighed 200 pounds. God called him to the ministry, and he went to seminary, and he ended up working with an organization called the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, FCA. He was an athlete, and because of his athletic background, he was very effective with these athletes. But then he was diagnosed with cancer, and cancer racked his body. And over a period of time, he dropped from 200 pounds to an emaciated 80 pounds. When David was ready to pass from this life into eternity, he asked his father to come into his hospital room. Lying there in bed, he looked up and he said, Daddy, do you remember when I was a little boy? How you used to hold me in your arms close to your chest? David's father nodded. David said, Daddy, do you think you could do that one more time, one last time, could you hold me? Again, his father nodded. And he bent down. Can you imagine the picture? A father picking up his 32-year-old son, 6 foot 2 inches, 80 pound, held him close to his chest so that his son's face was right next to his father's face. They were looking at each other, eyeball to eyeball, Tears were streaming down both faces. And the son said to his father these powerful words, Dad, thank you for building the kind of character into my life that can enable me to face even a moment like this. Powerful. Can your children say that of you? Can they say to you, thank you for building the kind of character into my life that can enable me to face even a moment like this. Men, men of this church, I dare you to be the kind of father, the grandfather to your children, where they will be able to say you've built into my life's character. Women, I dare you to be the mother and the grandmother to your daughters, to teach them about integrity and character and preciousness of heart, so that they will be able to say that to you as well. Build into them the kind of character that will enable them to face anything that life throws at them. Then you will have been a successful parent. Then you will be a real man, a real woman. Not only in your home, but even amongst your peers as well. But that must come from the generosity of your time. What are you investing in? What does your investment look like? 
Does it mirror the lifestyle that you live? Because it's not going to look very pretty if you don't take the time to invest into your children's life. Are you generous in your time? Look at verses 10 to verse 13. Paul writes, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And here's the verse we all know. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul recounts how the Philippian Christians did not forget him, how they took care of him, how they were their instruments that God used to meet his needs. Even before they had sent Epaphroditus with some money to help Paul in prison, which we talked about a few weeks ago, they had always wanted to care for Paul, but they didn't have the opportunity to show it. Paul never begged for their help. Paul simply laid out his needs and, and trusted God to meet it, which God did by using the Philippian Christians. But more importantly, what Paul wanted the Philippians to know is that God was teaching him a lesson. He was teaching him the important lesson of contentment. Paul says, it doesn't matter the circumstances and its challenges. I enjoy inner contentment. Whatever the situation, I'm inwardly satisfied. How was he able to find this inward contentment and this inward satisfaction? Paul tells us the secret in verse 11. He says, and he writes, I have learned. This is the Greek verb, meeo. It speaks of a secret learned by experience by initiation it's the idea of you joining a secret society a fraternity per se and to learn the secrets of this society you must go through an initiation you must experience initiation now paul is not joining a fraternity but that's the idea of the greek verb used here he says i have learned i have learned the secret through this initiation what's the initiation verse 12 Paul says, I've experienced both financial and material needs. And I've experienced both financial and material abundance. And whatever the circumstance, I've learned to cope. I've learned, he says, to be content. And therefore, the secret, having been initiated into this truth, he gives us the secret in verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In the biblical context, this verse is speaking about contentment. The secret of contentment is that Christ gives me the strength to find that inner satisfaction. You can't do it by yourself. It's impossible for you to be content by your own power. You can't sit around and say, okay, I'm satisfied, I'm satisfied, I'm satisfied. You will never be. Because our willpower is weak. If you're on a diet, you understand what I'm talking about. 
You need supernatural strength so that you will be able to withstand the temptation. Someone will always have something more than you. Someone will always have something better than you. And although you may say you are satisfied when that next cell phone model comes out, somehow your phone that day looked very old. Paul says, I have learned the secret. And the secret is that I can do all things. I can learn contentment through Christ who strengthens me. You see, sometimes we've got the notion that contentment is only for poor people. Poor people need to learn contentment. Paul says very clearly in verse 12, I have learned contentment both in plenty and in want. I've experienced contentment in abundance. And let me tell you what, when you have more of something, it's harder to be content. You need the strength of the Lord for you to be able to give up of the things that you have and learn to be content. It's harder for you to give up and be content than for someone who doesn't have anything and are told to be content. In both situations, it is a call for the strength of the Lord to help you in your containment. What I'm driving at is this principle. The second area in which we are to give generously to the Lord. And here it is, number two. We are to give generously of our heart. Number one is to give generously of your time. The second is to give generously of your heart. We often think that giving is only related to things, objects. But before that, it entails the giving of your heart. That which you desire, that which you crave. We talked about that last week. That which you so want, your very thought life. You give your heart to God. And you give it to Him generously. And you say, Lord, take it. It's yours. Because unless you give your heart to God, you will not understand what it means to give of your resources. Because the inner desire of our covetousness is not something we can so easily give up until we find the strength of the Lord to help us give up our heart. It is when we give our hearts to the Lord and with it our own personal desires, then we will find inner satisfaction. There we will find contentment. Apart from the giving of your heart to God, you will never understand contentment. You see, it's hard. People are never satisfied. Even if God gives them the world, they'll still never be satisfied. I like the story of a Christian grandmother who brought her grandchild to the beach. And uh, she watched as her little grandson played in the water and uh, she stood uh, a bit far off with her feet in the sand, not wanting to get her feet wet, watching her little grandson play happily uh, in the water. When all of a sudden, a huge wave appeared from nowhere and it crashed directly over the spot where the boy was playing. The water receded and the little boy was no longer there. He simply vanished with the wave. The horror of what just happened, she held out her hand to the sky and screamed and cried, Lord, Lord, how could you? 
Have I not been a, a spiritual mother? Have I not been a godly grandmother? Have I not given generously and faithfully to the church and, and, and to foreign missionaries? Have I not tried my very best to live a life that you would be proud of? God, how could you do this? A few minutes later, another huge wave appeared out of nowhere and crashed onto the beach. And as the water receded, the little boy was standing there, smiling, splashing the water as if nothing had ever happened. And then a loud voice boomed out of the sky. Okay, okay, I've returned your grandson. Are you satisfied? She looked at that little boy from head to toe. And then she responded, Where's the hat? Lord, he had a hat when you took him. You forgot the hat. That is a picture of the human heart. He gives us generously and we're still asking for more. It is something we will battle until the day we die. Unless we have learned to give generously to the Lord our heart, our own desires. Then we will learn contentment. Growing up, I've always wanted a nice car, as everyone does. Because of our financial situation, I drove a jalopy of a car. Throughout college, that car barely survived as I worked through college and uh, the air condition didn't work and unbearable in the Texas heat. Always very shamed that when I parked the car in my school's parking garage and being the school that it was with a lot of rich kids, that parking garage looked like a Porsche and Ferrari dealership. And so I said it in my mind that when I graduated and worked, I would buy myself a very nice car. So I started working as a management consultant, and I saved money for three years so that I could buy a brand new car. And I had my eye set uh, on the Chrysler 300M. This is a man's car. This is a power car. And I wanted to buy a Chrysler 300M. I'd saved up enough money in those three years, and I was going to buy it. I was ready to buy it. And I could just picture myself driving in this thing. But it was about that time, it was at that time, that God called me into the pastorate. And I had to use that money for my seminary tuition. It was a hard decision. Do I buy the car of my dreams? Or do I pay for seminary? What is one to do? Begrudgingly, not wanting to give my desires, but I knew I had to. I used the money to pay for four years of seminary. It was giving up what my heart so wanted. God didn't make it easy for me. During those four years, somehow I saw a lot of 300 M's driving next to me. I would look at those cars, envious, and tell the Lord, Lord, that... I should be in that car. That should be my car. I'm still driving the jalopy of a car that barely made it through. But you know what? With time, and as you learn to give generously the desires of your heart, your very heart itself, that desire begins to wane. And uh, many years after, I'd forgotten about it. Until three days ago.
because you know they don't have they have this car but it's very few and far between and you don't see it often a chrysler 300m but three days ago as we were at the mall parking lot my wife and i were about to walk uh, into the mall my wife turns to me and says hey isn't this the car of your dreams <laughs> i hadn't seen it i looked and sure enough it was a 300m of all places at sm i hadn't seen this car in nine years and i looked at it and let me be very honest with you and before the lord i looked at it and the desire i had for it back then 20 years ago was not the desire i had for it today it just wasn't there it was a nice car beautiful car but it was a car and I walked in with a smile because the desire wasn't there for it anymore because the heart was given to Jesus a long time ago. When you understand what it means to give of your heart and of your desires, then you will understand contentment. You will understand an inner satisfaction that will not crave what everyone else craves. But it must come from the generosity of the giving of your heart. Paul continues in verse 14 to verse 19. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphrodites the things sent from you a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And here's that wonderful verse. And my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. While being content in every circumstance, Paul was very grateful for the help of the Philippians, which was brought by the trustworthy Epaphrodites, in fact, this church had been supporting Paul, he writes, since he left the area of Macedonia. In fact, they were the only ones who saw fit to help him. And when Paul was in Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, as Acts chapter 17 recounts, they cared for his need not once, but twice. But Paul didn't want them to think that all he was looking for was money. He didn't want them to think that he wrote this letter to request from them more resources because he tells them in verse 18, I am fine. I'm fully supported. In fact, their last gift through Epaphrodites was a, was a beautiful act of generosity. It was something that God was pleased with. It, it was a sweet aroma, an acceptable offering because it was given, not in the amount, which is never mentioned. It is given from the cheerfulness and joy of their hearts. And so in verse 17, 
Paul tells them, not that I seek the gift, I'm not looking for more money, but I seek the fruit, the spiritual fruit that abounds to your account. Paul says, I'm not selfishly looking for more help, but I'm praying for your spiritual growth. And I am excited that as you give generously of your earthly resources, you are building up your heavenly account. Paul says, I'm excited. The fruit that abounds to your heavenly account is being filled up. Paul realizes that he cannot pay them back for their generosity. But he tells them in verse 19, My God will supply all of your needs with the riches that is in the glory found in Jesus Christ. These are blessings that money cannot buy. Paul says, God will meet your needs. God will make it up to you. Note that it is needs, not greeds. But nowhere is it mentioned here and in any other Bible verses that if you give money, then God for sure will give you more money in return. I realize that the interest rate is very low, historically low. Doesn't mean you give more to God because it's a better return on investment. But Paul says here, as you give your earthly resources, God will superabound and give you what you need in blessings that money cannot buy and as you are building up your heavenly account. As you give generously to the Lord your earthly possessions, do you find great joy in knowing that not only that God has, but He will supply all of your needs? And here, in these verses, is the third area of what we are to give generously. The first was the giving of our time. The second is the giving of our heart. The third is the giving of our resources. Before we can even get to the resources, we must give of our time and of our heart. Do you give the resources that God has given you with joy, without any strings attached? Do you give to expect a heavenly reward? Do you give knowing with joy and a satisfaction that your heavenly account is being filled? Because you certainly cannot outgive God. There is a, a misnotion, a misnomer, that somehow churches speak about money because they want it from you. I've said it before, and I said it honestly before you. When you give, it is more for you than it is for the church. It is a spiritual act of worship when you give. You see, when you learn the spiritual discipline of giving, you will learn what it means to let go of your vice grip on our earthly things to show us that we can let go. You will learn the great satisfaction of knowing that that which you give to the Lord's work Will last forever. This is not something churches make up or pastors make up so that you can fund the church. This is what the very Word of God says. When you give of your resources, you not only break the hold 
that these material objects have on you, but you are investing in that which lasts forever. And if you don't believe that, I can't help you. If you don't believe in that truth and you think it's a big joke, then you will never learn the joy of giving and the joy of giving generously. You will never be able to part with that which you have. Because if you cannot learn to give what you have now, then it doesn't matter if you have more in the future, you will still not give. One of my favorite lessons is told by Dr. Elmer Towns of Thomas Road Baptist Church. He tells of an illustration, uh, which perhaps may have happened in uh, your family, of a story of a man who buys his little boy some French fries at the local fast food joint. You know, kids love French fries. So the father buys a big one, and they sit at the table, and that's what all parents do, and I know you do, and this father did. When they sat down, he reached over to take one French fry to eat it. As he did that, the little boy slapped his father's hand and said, Don't touch my French fries. The father was hurt. The father thinks that his son is selfish. The father knows that he bought the French fries and they belong to him. The father knows that his son belongs to him. The father could have two reactions. The father could get angry and never buy that son French fries again to teach him a lesson in his selfishness. Or the father could continue to buy French fry and and bury his son in French fry figuratively so that one day he will learn that it's okay to share. The father thinks, why is my son selfish? When I've given a whole packet of French fry, I just want one French fry. I think you know where this illustration is going. God has given us everything. And when he asks for a little tithe and offering as an act of worship, people figuratively slap him on the hand and say, keep your hands off my things. The very one who bought it for us, who owns everything. And God could react in two different ways. He could say, you know what, you unselfish, ungrateful person, I will never give you anything ever again. Does God do that? Absolutely not. Look at your lives. As stingy as we are with our resources, God still does not do that, and He could very well do that. But what does He do? He lavishes upon us more of His grace and mercy so that one day we will learn. Maybe He is hoping we would take a small little figurative French fry and give it back to him. I've met a lot of stingy people. And one thing that generally characterizes them is that they are very unhappy. That's why Charles Dickens wrote a very famous Christmas play called The Christmas Carol. A glimpse into the human heart It's not about the giving. It's about the result that happens when one is not generous with that which is not even his. Oftentimes, the most joyful people I've met, regardless of what they have, 
The most joyful people are those who are the most generous. You see, there's joy in giving generously. I hope you will learn that lesson. This call to generosity is a call to give up of our time, our heart, and our resources. If you can learn these lessons, then it will bring great joy to your life. As I came back from visiting those six places in the funeral home, I began to think about, again, about life, as one always does when someone has passed. And I thought to myself in my quiet time this week, Lord, when it's my time to leave this earth, I want to have nothing. When it's my time to leave this earth, I want to have nothing to tie me down. Empty-handed I came into this world. Empty-handed I will leave. Yes, I will take care of my children with responsibility. But when I leave this earth, I don't want to leave anything. Can't take it with me anyways. I want to have given it all away. I want to leave with nothing because at the end of life, I want to have given all of my time, all of my heart, and all of my resources. And when we have that attitude, then we will learn joy beyond measure. And now we close this wonderful book with these parting words of benediction. Verse 20 to verse 23. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. In these four verses, Paul encapsulates the entire book. He begins with reminding them about the glory that belongs only to the Father. And then he reminds them at the end about the grace of Jesus Christ, which is evident in their lives. And that, my friends, if you've forgotten all the lessons we've talked about these past 10 weeks, is how you find joy in this life. You live for the glory of God and you experience the grace in your life. You will find joy when you live for the glory of God and you will find joy as you recount and experience the grace of Jesus Christ. That is where you find joy. It is my prayer that joy infuses this church, that the world will see the uniqueness of Christ with the joy of the people of this church. Regardless of whatever the circumstance, joy will always permeate this place we call Grace Christian Church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your words, words of comfort, words of challenge. It's not easy to give up the things that are the desires of our hearts. But you call us to do so as an act of worship 
for what you've done. You keep swatting your hand as you figuratively simply want a piece of the fry. May we come to a point in our lives someday that when your hands are stretched out, we open up our hearts and say, take, Lord, what you want. Allow this church to be a church that learns what it means to find joy in living a life for your glory's sake and every day recounting the grace and mercy shown in our lives. May the joy, regardless of circumstance, be the culture of our church because it is the way the people of the church live their life. May Grace Christian Church of the Philippines be synonymous always as a place of joy. In Jesus' name we pray.